Okay, I think we can we can start now. Uh, uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining in uh, to Rethink Economics India's uh, Reading Circle. Uh, those of you who are joining us for the very first time, so this Reading Circle is part of uh, Rethink Economics India network. Uh, we are a network of students, professors, researchers, and uh, uh, from other areas uh, who are who have a common interest uh, in promoting the plurality in economics. Uh, via various means and this reading circle is uh, one of our instruments through which uh, we read uh, across different uh, disciplines and uh, with an aim to try to blend in the lessons and the learnings from different disciplines into uh, economic mainstream theory. Uh, Tanishta uh, has agreed to moderate today's session and she has already moderated one session before so she needs some introduction and uh, and we, we like this uh, session to be very interactive. Uh, so, I mean, Tanishta will tell you about how, uh, when, when is the space to uh, raise your comments and doubts and, and, and speak, uh, but uh, please try uh, to be as much engaging as, uh, as possible. And uh, for, most, for, for the time that you are, you are not speaking, please keep uh, yourself muted. And when you want to speak, uh, you can unmute yourself and speak. And also, we'd like that if you can turn on, if it is uh, comfortable with you, uh, you can turn on your videos. Uh, uh, if you're not comfortable, that, that's okay. Uh, Tanishtha, uh, now you can take over. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, good evening. I'm Tanishtha, and I'm really uh, excited to moderate today's session. Um, I really hope today we have an interactive session and that everybody participates in whatever um, uh, capacity they can. And don't worry about, uh, I want to say this first because I don't want you to worry about how technical your language has to be. So just say what you know, what you observe and how that ties in with what we have read. Um, I am, uh, historian. So I'll speak a lot from my uh, discipline's perspective on what we have read. But uh, I hope to learn also from everything that you have to offer from your very disciplines and how that ties into uh, my perspective on how gender as an analytical category needs to be applied to all disciplines in social sciences. I hope I'm audible. Please let me know if, if at some point I'm not audible or not clear. Uh, so what I'll do is what today's uh, structure will be like is I'll start with a brief, a very, very brief introduction of the two readings, two uh, compulsory readings that uh, were circulated. And I'll also sort of uh, uh, give out a few questions that I thought of that I think we can discuss. And then I'll open the floor to what I, I hope can be a round robin session of everybody's perspective or at least initial comments on both the readings and the questions that I've posed. Uh, after sort of having an introductory initial remarks from everybody here or almost everybody or everybody who's comfortable here, we'll sort of pick out a few issues that I think uh, that I, I think I'll observe from your responses and then we'll discuss them further. I hope that's okay and let me know if you want something more interesting to do in the session. So uh, we read uh, two 
uh, articles and I think uh, one of them is a more uh, pointed article about one particular issue and the other is sort of an overview of the field, so to speak, what we call the state of the field essay. So Kalpa, uh, I'm sorry, my Siri just pops up without any, I don't understand, I don't know why. But anyway, um, so the Kalpagam's uh, article, which is called Gender and Economics, the Indian Experience is sort of an overview of theoretical frameworks that have been used to um, uh, study gender in various ways. The main critique of that piece is that gender as an analytical category is not used in most of the disciplinary uh, forays into gender. Now, what is my first, my first point that I would want us to discuss is what exactly does it mean to use gender as an analytical category? How does it differ from just investigating or inquiring women or gender, uh, like gender's uh, presence in society? So the, the, the critique that that article I think is making is uh, that it's not merely to record presence through data and aggregative uh, knowledge, but it's also to inquire the structural frameworks that produce this reality. And that the author believes is not happening through both the neoclassical and the Marxist methodology that is applied to study economical phenomenon related to gender. So how does the art, like the article sort of uh, looks at uh, women in three perspectives, like looks at how women have been studied in economics through three perspectives, through the category of work and how the idea or the, the fact that some actions get categorized as work itself is a plane or a field where gender politics and gender social norms play out. So that's the first intervention that uh, Kalpagam sort of points out. The second is to look at poverty and what are the indicators of poverty as a famous, it's as a famous way of looking of looking at, looking at poverty in economics is through indicators and how indicators of poverty often obscure the impact of gender, gendered structural relations. And so within the whole gamut of social relations in producing experiences of poverty. So what indicators tend to do, in, it, this, it's a larger critique that he points out, uh, which is how indicators obscure the experience of poverty instead of like, uh, instead and, and instead indicators sort of reduce experiences of poverty to broad categories and broad, uh, broad terms that do not capture the, either the reasons or the, uh, structures that enable that poverty or nor do they really uh, respect or pay attention to the diversity of the experience of poverty through varied lenses of power like caste gender religion caste like uh, sorry caste gender religion etc and class also of course right so um, that's the second area poverty as a field where gender as an analytical category does not get to be applied. Uh, the third is about development, which is an area that Kalpagam is fairly more uh, positive about, saying that the field of development has uh, progressed in a way that has taken into account what the unequal 
legacies of colonialism and other structures of like other historical experiences on what development is as a narrative in itself and how that narrative of development is unequal in its premise and how that premise has played out in policy making of development on development and that necessarily obviously has a gendered inequality or inequity embedded in that uh, embedded in its formulation right so and kalpagam believes that it as far as development as a concept is concerned it is still a field where gender has been used more dynamically than let's say poverty and work and but at the same time the author believes kalpagam believes that even within that there needs to be a lot of work that takes into account as to how women's participation women's agency women's resistance within the whole world of development especially capitalist development today has ne- has needs to be paid more attention to to understand like for example environmentalists activists from what position do they critique development and how gender plays a role in even environmental critiques of development so that the author believes is yet to like enter economics as a field but it has entered political science history sociology very vehemently in the field and it, the author believes that it will soon be incorporated into uh, the uh, into economics as a discipline as well so the author offers three sort of work uh, three sort of frameworks of research uh, as solutions first is the complementary research in which uh, like and the he he says that there are three stages through which research can critique itself and produce new frameworks that are sensitive to gendered structural relations within the larger gamut of social relations first is the complementary form of research where conventional concepts and methods are applied to subjects which were so far ignored or omitted second is compensatory research and where the powerful narratives and discursive structures which were usually white male and capitalist or global north based theories or theoretical frameworks and how those are incorporated into conventional categories and like they were how they were conven- like incorporated in conventional categories and need to be compensated for but they still use hand me downs or they still use the regular categories or regular methodologies but they haven't like and this is where the third stage comes in which is called contrasting research where you frame the methodology itself you frame the structure and investigative frame uh, the investigative apparatus itself based on and co- a completely alternate sense of reality a completely alternate sense of structure and do not use the structures and the methods and the categories and the equations and everything that was standard to the power based form the formulas that were used in the conventional modes of research so that's where contrasting research comes into the picture so you frame your method of analysis itself based off on an alternate experience of reality so that's where you you start from there instead of using existing frameworks on alternate realities right so that that's what kalpag that, that's summarizing kalpagam's uh, article and i think reading it will give you a lot of like examples from economics uh, and where they are placed within his breakdown of uh, 
and I'm, I'm assuming it's his, sorry, uh, their breakdown of uh, the, um, the field, right? So, um, and I will very, very briefly also sort of summarize Bina Agarwal's um, paper. And it's a, it looks like a long paper, but it's making a fairly straightforward argument. And the argument that I think Bina Agarwal is making is how to understand women's, like when we say women's agency, I think the deeper question that Bina Agarwal is asking is that when we say women's agency, when women make quote unquote choices, are women individual actors? Are they making choices like economics assumes rational actors to make? But how do you understand women making choices in the first place, especially given a rural intra-household setup, right? And the critique that Bina Agarwal points is says that this viewing of women as individual actors limits the way in which their agency is enabled through a variety of relationships. And Vinagarwal sort of points at four major nexuses, sorry, like the nexus of uh, agency is constructed through four arenas. Uh, the household, the members within the household, their gender, their caste, their religious status, the community, in which the household is embedded, which is the immediate uh, social networks that the household is engaging in. Third, this market and how the household participates in the economic structures of the region and how that structure is obviously embedded in a larger network of economic exchanges. So which is the market. So how, how a woman within the household participates with the community and also the market. And the fourth, fourth uh, uh, structure is the state, of course, because a woman, a woman's place in a household, as intimate and as as individualistic or as specific it may be to region, uh, language, culture, etc., it is still mandated and it's still structured and uh, stratified by the state. Right? So these are the four um, layers which produce, constitute, and also the, also the structures or layers where women contest their position and contest their power to bargain. Right? They contest, which, which I read, uh, although I think power to bargain is an economic way of understanding it, but it's a larger question about women exercising agency or making choices or having the ability to uh, make a choice in the first place, right? So that function of a woman's agency is to be understood and seen as resisting within these four layers of structure, like four structural layers of power, which is the household, the community, the market, and the state. This is the large argument that I think Veena is making. And uh, to understand uh, how much can women's quote unquote development happen within rural uh, agrarian societies is to first see what all can allow a woman to transcend the limitations that are placed on her because of her gender, right? Of course, this is a women-oriented gendered paper, 
uh, and this is this the gender relations here are strictly heteronormative are assuming a strictly heteronormative structure of society which obviously does not take into account the way gender itself is a field of power and that diminishes and the, the, the possibility for uh, those who don't identify with heteronormative structures of exist like reality so that's one side of the critique of one critique of the paper itself but at the same time it's a it's a useful way to understand how household which has been a very very popular trope invoked within economics as a discipline as a as the as the more node where a lot of analysis happens as the unit of analysis so to speak how that itself can be problematized and how women's position in it is not merely a factor of a very nuclearized atomized existence right so that critique i think is important and how i place both of these articles in a larger set of questions i'll come back i come back to the main question that i posed at the beginning is what does it mean to have gender as an analytical category a brief background is to the scholar called joan scott um uh joan scott is the one who wrote this very famous uh, article called gender and its uh, use as an analytical category and joan scott argued that just like we use race caste uh class as frameworks that fundamentally change the way we look at the world gender can also be one of those categories in the moment you apply gender as a lens everything absolutely every reality around us can be transformed to reflect structures of power right so gender becomes like a field where you can diagnose the existence of power just like you use caste like if you or class class is the most fun like universal sort of uh, it's a the marxists have made it a more universal category to use or analyze reality something like it's it's so john scott argues that gender can also be an equally transformative and equally fundamental diagnostic of power in the world so that's what john scott means by saying that use one has to use gender as an analytical category as to see everything through the lens of gender right the language like let's say you start with language you start with body you start with intimacy you start with sexuality you start with anything absolutely anything in the world then it's you the moment you put gender as a lens and you start looking at any reality be it music be it dance be it absolutely anything under the sun then everything would reflect a power gradation which may or may not coincide with the power gradations that we are familiar with while we analyze the world through the framework of class caste race ethnicity um or capital whatever it is right so that's what it means to use gender as an analytical category and that is what kalpagam argues that economics as a discipline does not has not yet embraced that it uses gender as one of the markers on a like one of the categories on a table to assess through data but it does not take into account as to how every day and every activity all the categories in the table can be gendered 
immediately. That's what it would mean to use gender as an analytical category, that every category on the table, every column on the table can be gendered if you place gender as a lens of analytical frameworks. Right, so that's what it means to use uh, gender as an analytical category, and Jane Jones got came up with it around, uh, I think it was early nineties. Um, I want to stress more on this. It's it's a moment larger in the larger world of social sciences because that's when the importance of Foucault, which you can see in Kalpagam, of course, the importance of Foucault and its and its and and in the importance of post structuralism really enters social sciences. And it's important to understand that context as to how every reality is big begins to be seen as socially constructed, which is what you see in Kalpagam as well. He starts with that premise that power and knowledge are the fundamental ways in which we live, see, understand, try to know, quote unquote, whether we know them or not is also a different question. That's also something that's contested by postmodern post-structuralists, right? So it's that moment where everything seems to be socially constructed. So which is why using gender as an analytical category has a historical sort of uh, uh, relevance to the early 90s. And it also applies to that moment because of uh, subaltern studies, especially in India, becoming a very, very big thing in from the 80s onwards. And it sort of changes, like using gender as an analytical category comes to be applied with the idea of starting stories, not revising stories, but starting stories from below starting to stay, say stories, starting to articulate reality, starting to frame reality from below is a, is a method or a movement that starts with the, with the meeting of these two uh, sort of fields. The way you see, like when we read, we read Thompson last time and Thompson, Thompson inspired field subaltern studies sort of comes together with this post-structure, like this post-colonialism, uh, subaltern studies and uh, uh, post-structuralism sort of come together to sort of start asking these questions about everything that we we try to see women also as a um, player in a largely gendered field uh, in in a field that is dominated by male gaze by male um, white male capitalist gaze and so to even start understanding how to work with gender and social sciences, we need to start framing reality from the perspective of those who have lived the oppressive, uh, oppressive uh, nature of that reality, right? So that's where this intervention is, it becomes a historically important moment. Uh, now, I'm, I'll throw the floor open now. Uh, that would be the contrasting research methodology. Yes, like essentially what Kalbergam is arguing should be the contrasting research methodology is to challenge knowledge itself. That you have to start understanding how knowledge that we are operating with so far is constructed through power and that knowledge itself needs to be dismantled. So if you want to study gender from like in a way that uses gender as an analytical category, you've got to start making your categories and your equations and your methodology from scratch and frame and base it all on an alternate experience of reality, that from below, that from the perspective of those who have lived the oppressive nature of gender. That exactly is what he's arguing should be contrasting research methodology. 
right? So um, the questions that I had sort of prepared us to say that how do we, like if we are emerging uh, uh, economists or social scientists or whatever field we are in, A, how does our field need to, what exactly does it need to learn from some other fields in order to start using gender as an analytical category? Second, uh, what is the, like, the exact relationship between the material locations of gender and the immaterial locations of gender? By which I mean, what are the ways in which you can see gender playing out in tangible forms and how do you see, for example, I'll, I'll use this example from Bina's paper, what Bina calls altru altruistic motivation can very easily be called a gendered, an immaterial form of gender power relation because women think it's altruistic and it's their job to do it because that gender division, that, that, that gendered social norm has made women believe that it's their job to sacrifice everything and do it for someone else, right? So you that, that, that's what I mean by immaterial and material forms of locations of gender. Like what are these two sort of, uh, and how do they, um, how can their dialectic sort of be diagnosed um, in framing our models? Third, how can economics, uh, this, is sort, no, this is sort of related, how can economics use and interpret the relationship between material and cultural? The, the fourth question that I have, and I think it's an important question is, when do we say women exercise agency and what role does women exercising agency to resist become? And even if it's a, like what economics tends to do is also focus on what larger data sets or majority sort of in the data says, right? So how do you, what importance do you give to the minority in a data set? Right. So how do you understand women's agency and resistance, which may not come across as a majority action or majority thing in a tabulated data set? How do you still pay attention to it and make formidable models out of that? Like how much importance do you give to something like women's agency and resistance, which may be small in number, which may be minuscule in number? Or how do you start paying attention to things that can be called as agency and resistance? and therefore reformulate your data. So what is the importance of women's agency and resistance to large data sets that influence economic uh, studies, right? And how can uh, economics, like how can studies in economics sort of offer um, ways for women to enter the field of knowledge? Like how does economic, how can economics as a discipline embrace methodology that can allow women to enter the field of knowledge and give them the platform to exercise their agency and resistance? Like how can economics as a discipline transform policy perhaps like in a way that can allow women to enter? Like how can economics be used as that tool to engage in feminist politics, so to speak? Like if, if, if I can frame it more easily, how can, you, how can economics discipline be an ally in feminist politics? Let's let's say I put it. That's the easiest way I can put it, right? Um, yeah. And how can the last question that I have is how can macroeconomics benefit from an eye towards everyday planes of gendered reality, like body and intimacy? Like what 
so far and the things that we have read we have not really seen body intimacy violence um sexuality anywhere playing a role in the models that we read about right so where then that is one of the most fundamental planes of gendered reality so what is the place of something like sexuality body intimacy if we have to incorporate all of that in our understanding of economic realities bina does a little bit of that kind of work but we didn't read it but i want you to think about the relationship of body intimacy violence and uh, sexuality to larger economic realities <sighs> well yeah those are my questions so uh, we can go around and see who all want to sort of give comments on any of these or anything of your own as well so please feel free to add on questions or anything so yeah i've spoken a lot Shall I speak? Yeah. Is it fine? Yes, yes. Go on. Yeah. I know there is a five seconds of awkwardness before everybody is waiting for the other person to unmute. Uh, so I, I know some of the questions I could sort of answer, and the others they still need to be thought of for me. And I'm sure everybody will pitch in and help us answer. Uh, how? What is the way sort of forward to? kind of address or at least um, acknowledge i think it has to begin with in true feminist fashion it has to begin with an acknowledgement of what has not been happening right so i think if we start with the larger data sets that we use very frequently in economics and then sort of sit with and at least understand what has been wrong in the way that uh, the collection of data itself has been going wrong and also bring it to the question of what constituted data itself and i think in one of the earlier uh, sessions i think it was pavitra if uh, who helped us understand the feminist critique to why women's labor gets discounted well because the questions asked are in such a way that it does not constitute his work because of migration i think if she is around or if somebody else is understood the argument better please uh, please elucidate for the rest of us also um yeah so i think one is looking at it that way the other is also like the understanding from the social movements of uh people of different colors and genders right the argument of intersectionality and again like it, it always comes back to the dalit feminist critique or it will come back to the black feminist critique right so patricia hill collins domination metrics of domination and then you understand that there are different categories in addition to gender and maybe using those categories in an intersectional way as kimberly crenshaw pointed it out might be one of the it it's it's open for discussion like it's open like we can all see how it can be done but that could be one way of doing it and uh, i think what is deeply problematic within economics is um it's it's again like that political project of who will get cited the most when we talk of economics itself right it it will be that's like if you look at the syllabuses for example we know who constitute like who are the people who are constituting as the majority reading like we know it's white men 
or in, in the Indian context, it will be both upper caste women as well as uh, upper caste men. Like both genders have played in that sense, both the dominant genders have played equal role. Um, the other thing I found a little bit problematic with both the readings where uh, they're not stating their own social positionality. I think that would have been, maybe I'm looking at it like too fine tooth comb. Maybe that is the reason I'm coming up with it, coming up with this, but also the years in which these writings were done, right? 18, 1986 and 1997 is what I have marked them as. I'm not really sure of that. Uh, the question of, um, yeah, I think there were a few other questions, but maybe like everybody else will respond and then I'll come back to it. That's, that's four great questions, I think, and we need to really, really take into account. I have a question uh, as a historian, like, is it is it common in uh, economics as a discipline to embrace positionality of the scholar, or at least acknowledge the limitations from which a scholar investigates a reality and what their status can, how their status can impact their work? My my sense to that is uh, no. Um, in general, um, in general, e e economics has uh, kind of emphasized uh, focusing on um, the most generalizable uh, uh, aspects of a particular phenomena, social phenomena, and as a result of that, this problem that you've articulated in different ways uh, in terms of like, you know, uh, what about the non-majority part of a data set uh, kind of is, is not, I mean, I mean, to, uh, methodologically, it, it is sometimes deemed to be irrelevant to uh, uh, generating um, conclusions or generating um, the kind of uh, notions on the basis of which policy choices are framed. So um, I've seen this in some Marxist approaches to um, um, to economics, but again, positionality is not something that is very, very, it's not taken seriously. It's not taken seriously, if I can be as blunt as that. In, in mainstream economic theory that so far what I have read, I have come across none, uh, any author uh, mentioning about social positionality. Uh, I, I, can, I, can, I can say that about uh, game theory for sure. Uh, the game theory, which Bina also mentions many times that uh, while incorporating or modeling powers uh, within households uh, across genders, uh, game theoretical model has also been one of the dominant analytical frameworks, and uh, there I have not come across uh, any other identifying uh, social personality. I mean, if I can just give an example from, uh, there's a bunch of literature that basically emerges from the Chicago school. Look, okay? it's uh, um, uh, following Gary Becker, essentially, uh, Gary Becker, subsequently George Akerlof, these are these are sort of heavy hitters in economics. Um, uh, the this subgenre became called the economics of discrimination, which Akerlof changed into the economics of identity. 
and even in this even when identity is explicitly the thing that is under consideration there there's uh, there's never been any uh, sense that you know uh, i the author who am a, uh, who who is a um, essentially a white european man occupying a very prestigious position in a university having developed subgenres of like economic i don't have to acknowledge that to do my to to study identity i don't have to acknowledge that and that's i think one one aspect of um, i think uh, i think it's uh, i think we're i think rightly characterizing that as uh, some sort of a feeling <clears throat> i also think that has to do with uh, it's not just about uh, i think it's also it also has to do with uh, and i've had this debate with ankush before uh, in life but it also has to do with how economics things of knowledge is one true reality and there is no other way to see it i think uh, this presumption about universality and unitarity of knowledge and i think to characterize a reality in what i used to call mathematical equations is presumed to be the most accurate sort of representation of the like you said general generous generalizable data right so and and the, that assumption sort of makes people think that if someone is approaching a reality through these frameworks of knowledge which is mathematical or you know aggregate aggregating in nature or something then it cannot be disputed it's it's the undisputable nature of knowledge that economics produces that the discipline i think presumes i'm not sure but like this is what i think so the claim the... the claim that economists make there uh which is that if uh, so this is something we also discussed in the very first session uh, robert sudgan's reading uh that when i present a model to you in a mathematical framework so if i say that x means x means this y means this x is get back zero and so on and so on then you and i understand the very same thing that's the claim because and that is where an economist has positioned himself or herself away from the biases of uh let's say an economist or all over the privileges as as uh, as an analyst right that's the claim that because we are doing this we are laying a mathematical foundation and as long as you and i understand math uh i mean we have uh, we have an absolute common understanding of what x and y means in 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 this question and that's why i have uh, taken away all the biases that it could potentially have had uh, that's the claim uh, i i see a lot of problem with that now well, yeah Uh, but that's that's where the understanding maybe i think uh, where that that is where the understanding comes among economists that maybe they don't need to talk about social positionality because they are laying down mathematical framework in that manner i would i would also i mean my feeling is that you know i think uh, one other way to get an entry point into understanding this is to maybe think about the fact that uh, um that uh, predominantly like the the sort of basic uh basic concepts of economics do reflect uh, um uh not only a, a morality but also a, a epistemology that comes from uh, utilitarianism so this need to dismiss uh the individual or drown the individual into what is good for uh 
the quote unquote social in that very Benthamite kind of formulation of like uh, things makes things a bit more problematic because you know essentially what you're doing is then you're uh, um, you are privileging uh, right at uh, the kind of like uh, your the basis of what you think is valid knowledge essentially if I can say it simply is uh, is omitting certain narratives from consideration completely so there are certain forms of things you cannot fit into this you know is it good for me is it good for the rest of society kind of uh, binary which uh, which which is a legacy of this utilitarian uh, foundation so i think that's another point to i think uh, uh, perhaps look into absolutely I just had a question of, about that. Like, what about before utilitarianism? Like, was it any better? Like, because well, I doubt it, right? Well, yeah. Well, before utilitarianism, um, before utilitarianism, well, essentially, you're talking of Smith then. And if you're talking of Smith, uh, he, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you, a lot of, he's mostly known for, uh, the Wealth of Nations, and most of us have heard of him only because of a, um, I would say, a unremarkable kind of reading of the Wealth of Nations that largely propagated by the Chicago School. Uh, but if you do read uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments, you get a better sense of him. And um, his notions are more embedded, I think, in uh, taking into consideration um, uh, I suppose a broader net than utilitarianism will allow. But again, it's very problematic because, you know, his theory of like what is uh, right and wrong, which comes from moral sentiments, when read with his theory of what he believes law should be like, uh, I mean, he, he does actually say in, for example, uh, his, uh, his work on jurisprudence, he is very, very clear that basically, you know, law is the thing that basically, uh, um, what is the exact thing? Just give me a second. I'll just pull out the exact quote. It's, this is pretty shocking, which is why I want to read it out. So just give me a second. I'm just going to mute myself. And also to add on the Marxist critique of Smith and Ricardo is the, the fact that they tend to portray categories as universal ahistorical ones like though that's a basic Marxist Grunjisa and capital sort of can like criticize them because they say that oh there's always been a market oh there's always been consumption oh there's always been production so what's the big deal about you know how capitalist relations of production so the, 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 the fact that the relation of production, particular to capitalism, embraces a certain divorce like alienation, alienation of labor and a relationship of wage to labor and labor to idea of time. And that that is particular to post 17th, 18th century imaginations of people's work. I mean, that uh, bourgeois economists like Smith and Ricardo sort of don't take into account. So they make Again, that's that's also a fundamental problem with economics to take categories as a static, ahistorical reality. Uh, 
right? Like, but that they're not specific to an experience. That, like, let's say something like one term can capture the experience of everyone under the sun. It doesn't matter how people really live it on the ground. So that's the famous Marxist critique of bourgeois, capital, uh, bourgeois economics. And, and, and I think, you know, to, to that extent, uh, that, uh, that the deployment of that phrase bourgeois actually makes some sense. So uh, um, I, can, I can read out the quote now, I've pulled it out. Uh, basically, this is from uh, lectures in jurisprudence. And essentially, Smith is talking about uh, what he believes the reason for government to kind of exist and what its role should be. Uh, basically, he's saying something to, and I'm going to quote verbatim here. Uh, um, when some have great wealth and others nothing, it is necessary that the arm of authority should be continually stretched forth and permanent laws or regulation made which may ascertain, that is, secure the property of the rich from the inroads of the poor. Laws and government may be considered in this uh, and indeed in every case as a combination of the rich to oppress the poor and preserve themselves the inequality of the goods which would otherwise be soon destroyed by the attacks of the poor who if not hindered by the government would soon reduce the others to an equality with themselves by open violence. This is uh, Smith. So, um, I think that characterization of Smith as a bourgeois economist is something that's important to keep in mind. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I'm of course reading this quote uh, uh, within of course the, the appropriate context, but I do recommend everyone take a look at like lectures in jurisprudence. But, uh, but I think the, the, point that, the point that needs to be made is that, uh, you know, the things that we're falling back on, I suppose, the fact that there is this, uh, um, categories in economics tend to be uh, ahistorical. They tend to not be contextualized within the local kind of uh, uh, nuances um, uh, and formulations. So this is not a, essentially a ground up. And I think that's, that, that's one of the basic points of criticism, right? That economics as it presently stands is largely a deductive exercise. It is top down in the sense that it applies. It has a logic that is prefigured and that it imposes that logic onto uh, social reality, which is a point that uh, uh, Eric Hobsbawm has made in uh, if uh, he's got this uh, book called On History. And in On History, he's got these two chapters called Historians and Economists, where uh, he's uh, he, uh, he's quite bitter about the fact that uh, economists don't uh, really uh, think about things ground up. And uh, as we can see, uh, um, it is a severe uh, lacking, I think, of the discipline. Sorry, I went on a bit of a monologue there. No, that's okay. And that's absolutely true. And I think a part of what um, uh, Smith was saying about this relationship between property, state, and market, and therefore power relations can also be seen in Bina's argument, right, about how the state is embedded to protect property. I think Kavita was, Kavita had to say something, and I think some other people had also unmuted themselves. If, yeah. 
Yeah. Hi. Um, I had a question. Uh, this is more on, I think there was a, oh, I'm Kavita, by the way. I don't think I've met any of you. Um, I have to state at the outset that this is not an area that I'm very well versed with. I work as an environmental economist. So this is, I mean, uh, feminist economics and all of this. And the terminal is a little new to me. So pardon my commonplace terminology and language. Um, but I had a question specifically about valuing women's work. It, I think it was an article that was shared on the group and uh, specifically in domestic spaces and things like that. Um, and so I work in environmental economics and we have a very parallel concept of environmental valuation. And, um, and I mean, with the pros and cons that, you know, we talk about um, some people think that it's a, it's, it's a start to be able to value it. And it doesn't matter what you actually set the exchange value at, but the fact that you're valuing it is sort of a signal to the capitalist system that, hey, this is, um, and, um, but again, in our field, for example, we have people who say you shouldn't commodify nature or you shouldn't co be commodifying these things to start with. Um, so, uh, but, uh, but uh, what has happened in um, the environmental field is that the valuation has taken a much bigger, th that has gotten much, much more prominent. So now valuation is a big thing and lots of governments are getting in on it. But what I'm trying to wonder is that, um, is that, while I mean I I can appreciate the idea of valuing women's work and actually setting exchange values on it I I understand that but I don't I don't understand what the contentions are on people who say we shouldn't be valuing it so I'm wondering what if you could maybe you know uh, give me a short understanding on what the general contentions are are on people who say you shouldn't be you know, it's not the right thing to be valuing women's work or like setting a, an exchange value for it. And what, you know, your personal opinion is, I'm sorry if it's a very, very basic question to ask. I don't think it's a basic question. I think it's a very fundamental question. And I think someone else had raised their hand and wanted to say something. If you have to say something about this, we, we, we definitely need to address this question. But if someone else also had something to say, I saw someone. Shrishti, yes. Yeah. Um, so I had a point to make regarding uh, valuation of uh, women's work. For me, the major, and what I have studied, the major point of contention would be who values that work, right? Given the current uh, narrative, it is, quite obvious that those in power, that is, uh, that is that we live in a male dominated society, it is the male that will be valuing uh, a woman's work. So valuation is not the problem, but from what lens the valuation is being done is what is problematic. And secondly, the in, in my opinion, the implications of this would uh, directly result into amplification of already existing gender roles. So that is what I kind of feel um, would happen. Had it been a woman, I mean, if it is a male putting a value on it, first of all, like it, it, it would lack perspective as to what all goes into it. So in my opinion, what would actually happen is, for example, uh, a, room of, a room full of males debating whether abortion should be legal or not. 
right? That is what it would ultimately result into, unless we have like a panel of women, and not just women, but all all in uh, all inclusive, not just women, but women of um, of, of diverse classes, of of diverse places, because when we see. Uh, if, if we employ gender as a lens, then we'll be able to see intersection of gender with other variables as well. So unless we have that kind of a diverse panel, that valuation is going to be extremely skewed and problematic. That is, that is my point. Um, if I could button on that, um, I think it, I think it really binds back to the idea of when we were talking about economics, I think Dwayne made this point about economics not being contextual. I think um, the idea of valuing women's work cannot one be, there cannot be a one size fits all approach. Um, it really depends on where you are, which region you are in, which uh, country you are in, because um, I mean, this is from the discussion that I think the brief discussion we had on the group also, like for someone like Sweden and Norway, they have already made quite a lot of advancement in this space. So for them, the starting point or the lens that they view it from is quite different for someone like India, where patriarchy and domestic violence, dowry, child marriage, girl education, all of this is quite entrenched still. Um, and when we go into who values the work, I think um, it's not enough. Like I, I echo Shristi's point on it being inclusive because I still think it's not enough to just have women on the panel. Um, because sometimes, like for example, I'll take Argentina's example, who just recently legalized abortion, and I have, I have friends, like female friends in Argentina, who were not for this, who thought it was sad that abortion was legalized. So it's not. Um, just because they believe in the church a lot, the concept of like pro-life, anti-life. So it's not enough to just have a woman or just have women on the panel. It's quite important that you have an inclusive and diverse panel where it's where you have all opinions from all aspects taken into consideration because sometimes what happens is, and we have seen in this country, also like sometimes women themselves are making remarks on other women that oh it was maybe her fault or uh, something like that so I think just because the idea is so entrenched of patriarchy is so entrenched it's quite important that the starting point is fundamental and inclusive like you can't directly move into um, value or not value I think some fundamental ideas need to change Um, just one more point that came to my mind um, post Jaya's mention of the two articles that were shared on the group. I think uh, what current, like when we read the second article about what is happening in the Scandinavian countries, it is again curbing a woman's choice. So what is happening there is quite the opposite. Again, if a woman wants to stay home and be a homemaker, then she's being ostracized for it or she's being looked down upon, which is again problematic. The idea of feminism was never to dictate what is to happen. It was to give women the choice. So again, if we are 
uh, if we are adding a value to a certain choice, it shouldn't happen that it should act as an exercise for stigmatization. So that if this is more valuable, this is what a woman should do, and this is less valuable, this is what she should do. The whole idea of the exercise is to give her or them a freedom of choice. And the valuation shouldn't act as, uh, or, or it would be very difficult to separate the idea of just economic valuation from that having social implications in terms of power. And actually, sorry, um, but just one last point. Um, and this binds back to the uh, to the question where we were talking about what we can learn from other fields. I think on Shristi's point is, um, what is the idea of feminism? So in sociology, we actually study different types of feminism, which is not something that we ever study in economics. Um, and there were the actual feminism and we even studied a category which is called Nazi feminism or radical feminism. Um, and I think it's quite important to really pin down, again, binds into everything that we're talking about, like who really values work, who is, even if you have women in the panel or women valuing women's work, anything, um, you really need to understand, I think we need to understand what really is feminism and what like what is the definition of feminism, where it starts, what what it actually meant. It meant, you know, equality between men and women. It doesn't mean, it is not that, uh, essentially the idea of radical feminism is to that women want to end up oppressing men. That is not the idea of feminism. So I think it's quite important, uh, or like Nazi feminism. So that is not the idea of feminism. It's about equality. So I think it's also quite important when such decisions are made to understand like what exactly feminism means. Hmm. I have I so much to say. Sorry. sorry. Sorry, sorry, go on, go on. I was just gonna say three things, I think four, th three things. Uh, yes, like Jaya said, uh, it's not. It's important to remember that feminism is not a monolithic category. It, it, is, it is dynamic and like, this is what it means to make a category historical and contingent, that you have to take into account how the actors have framed their, uh, their category itself. So if we apply feminism as an ideology to a variety of actions that can be motivate, motivated from a variety of reasons or rationalities, then I think then we are also doing that same uh, violence, epistemological violence on our part as scholars. So even when we sort of categorize something as feminism, we have to define what that category means in the context in which we are using it based on what the actors that we are investigating have defined it as or imagine it as. Because radical feminists also think they are feminists. Right. So and that is like if you, if you think that feminism is prioritizing anything to do with women, then even that would count as feminism. Right. So like in the broader sense of the term, but that's not how we sort of as scholars should approach anything. That's that's precisely what this means, that you have to construct categories from based on the way in which your actors have framed these categories. And going back to Kavita's question, and I think this is also something that large criticism in at least history and sociology that I know of has done this 
is it enough to have women on the panel and yes it should be a diverse inclusive panel but at the same time it should not be like abolition is not a women's problem it it is not a women's problem is what gender as an analytical category would say because it is to see everything like you know you use gender as a lens to see power in general power as a larger structural reality to call something a women's problem and that it does not affect other people is itself like taking away how gender is implicit in all realities right so even that it does not affect men is itself a gendered question right so that, that like that that's why uh, it, there has been a recent uh, recent problem like you call it a capitalist problem call it a body body based politics or something I, i'm not saying we should call it like i'm saying that there's this critique that exists and it's it's a common critique amongst activist circles to stop calling things women's problem because then some people take you know evade their responsibility to sort of do anything about it uh i think a fundamental question that kavita asked and i think uh, this is also something that uh, it's a larger epistemological question the idea of value right uh, it goes down to as to what value exactly means it comes i think historically from a post enlightenment perspective when you can place values on what you understand as things or as labor so marx is i'm sorry i'm the marxist like i'm talking like like someone <laughs> i keep bringing marx back into the picture but marx is the one in capital chapter 1 in very very like volume 1 chapter 1 elaborately explains why this is exactly what a capitalist problem capitalism's problem is that it sort of makes everything reduced to a unit of value like it reduces everything to a unit of value sort of this exchange value that you're saying it makes exchange value equivalence like makes produces a relationship of equivalence amongst variety of things which have their own contextual cultural historical meanings and practices associated with them that equivalence is where the problem comes into the picture and i think divanshu the article that divanshu had shared that it is like something like you know making housework a like an recognized form of work institutionalizes gender norms but i don't like housework is not a gendered category until it is practiced as a gendered category right right so housework as a category as a something that enters bureaucratic and uh, knowledge knowledge based uh, you know knowledge itself if it enters knowledge then that the practice is gendered is what needs to be investigated in order to overturn it but it as a category itself is not as such a gendered category when it's entering the bureaucratic frameworks and knowledge tables and stuff like that right so it institutionalizes in order to sort of i think tackle it which i don't see i don't understand like really the problem of but um, and that's where your question about what is the value of women's work and how can you place a value on women's work i mean that's exactly the question you can ask the same question about any form of work how can you place a value in fact like we read with bullshit jobs right last time right you place much lesser value on some more fundamental forms of work that which we as a society cannot live without than we 
you know the value that we place on something like consultancy or something like hr right we we, we pay a manual scavengers much lesser than we pay uh, hr consultants right and that that the problem that's a larger cultural history to it so i think the problem at like the thing is that it pose enlightenment you start seeing nature you start seeing things as alienated the alienation is where the problem is it's the alienation that makes humans capable of putting a value on things or what we think are things someone also else also had something to say sorry <laughs> uh thanks a lot to lot of you answered and it was very helpful um if nobody else has a question i'll ask another one but i'm going to wait 5 minutes to check devanshu oh. you want to say something no uh in reference to tanisha who brought i think you brought up the capitalist part i think i read a really interesting uh thing so i'm reading this book called the nine lives of neoliberalism and it showed like one of the like one of the pieces about how Like the new liberal, new liberals like Gary Becker and you know Friedman also, they supported like they want they challenged the idea that you know the women's, uh, you know, a social insurance should be should be privatized. So I think uh, when the New Deal happened, I think from the forties, uh, they had a big social insurance for women, you know, and they had a lot of like you know stuff for them, and then you know, the money actually transferred to them. So that was the whole stuff going on. But what they argued was, and that I think they argued that. no this insurance this social stuff should be your part of the family structure it should not you know be supported by the state and uh, so i think that's it's pretty interesting the picture of you know how the new liberals and you know supporting the patriarchy structure came in together and you know their argument was about like no the debt is increasing too much and no so let's privatize this social security system which i think before that it was like i think america had a quite interesting at least for white women per se that you know the state really supported their um, you know um, unemployed or other kind of insurances but i think that was an interesting thing which i with uh, which i understood but yeah yes i think uh, yeah well neoliberalism privatizes everything <laughs> to take the like to reduce the state's responsibility to sort of equit like distribute and like uh, implement equity ankush i think you were going to say something were you sorry yeah, yeah. so you mentioned that uh, this neoliberal stance is in educate uh, in uh, you know uh framing or oh, having gender as an ethical framework but i think kalvakam also said that even the marxist uh view was also inadequate in having gender as an ethical framework so in what sense is the norm is uh, it is in that case and what is marx i don't know i'm not very versed with marxist literature but in what sense marx did incorporate gender as an ethical framework yes well oh, parin wants to say something no 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 uh, it is fine mr uh uh yeah well uh i think uh, i circulated federici's article but like uh, there is like a bunch of marxist feminists who sort of they're marxists by like the philosophical and 
methodological frameworks, but uh, they essentially contest how the way in which Marx particularly wrote about class as his main analytical unit sort of obscures and invisibilizes this bunch of work that women do that sustains capitalism. So there are two, lots of things. Marx said a lot of things in different stages of his life. But uh, first, he categorized women also as a part of like lump and proletariat uh, who do work, but their work doesn't count as proletarian work. So it cannot be mobilized for the purpose of revolution. Right. So second, uh, because it's too anarchist in nature. Second, uh, Frederici's critique is that reproductive labor, which essentially comprises most of the domestic labor that we can think of, caring, caregiving, affective labor, caregiving, uh, reproducing children, uh, cooking, uh, all of that uh, work is something that women do for free because of which, you know, factory-based industrial labor or even agrarian rural labor is possible. And to also invisibilize women's participation in agrarian labor is by calling it all a class problem, sort of disregards the way in which gender is appropriated as a category that essentially sustains this whole system of production, right? This whole mode of production is sustained on the invisible, invisibilized gendered labor that essentially occurs. Right, that's the critique that Marxism sort of faced early in its lifetime. But eventually a lot of Marxist feminists emerged who uh, is at least in history, like I'm not sure about all econom Marxist feminist economists, but at least in history, a lot of like Federici, for example. Uh, and also in India's context, I don't know if you know Vandana Shiva who writes on eco-feminism and uh, so they, they came up with ways in which to see how the relationship between, and in the, in the context of US black feminists too, right? Who work on waste and caregiving labor. So they sort of identified ways in which, you know, class analysis needs to take into account gender and also race. And in the case of India, environment in Vandana Shiva's work and, in, and some people also work on caste, how all of this in, impacts the way in which gender, like labor is divided, that sustains capitalism as a structure, without which capitalism wouldn't sustain it. So Marx did not see all of that and categorized all of it as like a, within a class form of unit. That's the critique. Someone wanted to say something. I think Kavita had a question. Yeah, I was trying not to hoard uh, <laughs> all the time. So I was just saying. Um, okay. Um, this, I am, I think I probably throwing you in a different direction, completely different direction, but, and if it's not the right platform again, tell me. Uh, but um, in the recent past, I work a lot on, climate adaptation and things like that. And there, there is a lot of um, issues in terms of, um, I mean, obviously in terms of the differentiation on in communities and like, and things like that out of a gender is one other one other perspective that I see. Uh, because even in terms of natural resources and things like that, there is a very big difference uh, 
in terms of what women do and what men do and um and now recently a lot of projects and investments and things like that has started bringing in a more social lens like they'll say these social safeguards need to be fulfilled for you to have um for you to have i mean you that you have to consider those things also when you're implementing a project and that you have to monitor and account for those things as well um and 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 recently they've been trying to include uh, gender a lens for, of gender as well and um, with varying degrees of success and varying degrees of criticism but um, but i'm just wondering um, but and everybody always has these sort of rudimentary indicators when it comes down to uh, trying to because at the end of the day it has to be tractable it has to be monitorable there are these uh, problems at the end of the day practically um, and so i'm just wondering and whatever anybody ends up coming up with ends up being rudimentary it is widely critiqued as not being sufficient and all of that so um i'm just wondering from a practical uh, in policy or an implementable point of view if there are certain uh, indicators not not existing but at least conceptual ideas of indicators and the kind of things that they should be using that would be considered you know uh acceptable maybe not as a you know everybody will never agree to it but like as a bare minimum that it should contain some certain things um yeah <laughs> so if that's a question that makes sense for this and i can i uh, could uh, address that in a certain kind of way so um, what uh, you're speaking of kind of now exists in the world of i mean to put it as a marxist finance capitalism essentially the stock markets uh, this is uh, referred to as a product called esg environment social and governance related stuff so when we're talking of esg and particularly when we're looking for when when we're essentially what's happened is that this this uh, idea that the environment should be taken into consideration the idea that uh, um stakeholders should be taken into consideration the idea that in terms of governance you have a board that comprises of maybe 50% women or 75% women or uh decision makers belong to a broader uh, or more diverse array of things these are things that have now been through stuff like esg funds been turned commodified and of course been put out into the market uh at present i believe there are about seven esg funds that are like listed uh and um um uh, i'm doing some work on this which is why i, I can kind of say uh, say talk about this to some extent there is uh, there is uh, there is uh, a way in which um, what you call uh, how the practical or measurable things that you you you're, you're looking for have been kind of identified by various multilateral uh, multilateral organizations so for example one common thing to adhere to is uh, imf has a certain standard of like uh, you know what points should go into uh, esg so if it is truly considering the environment then it must check a few boxes etc but uh, it's it's i mean i think it's interesting in terms of um, 
and I suppose you could check check these frameworks out. Uh, if you, I mean, if you want specific references, maybe I can put that on the group or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, this is uh, this. So what essentially has happened is, and this is why you know uh, historians, particularly uh, Marxist historians, talk of like. Uh, the imperialism or the colonialism of economics as a discipline, right? It just goes and kind of turns everything into a commodity. Um, specifically, this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, to think that uh, you're trying to attract, uh, so this is kind of capitalism's way of being progressive. You, you're trying to attract finance capital by saying, look, we are a company that has 50% women. But uh, I think the point that uh, to address your point specifically, I think you know in in this kind of thing, let let's just take a hypothetical, right? Like suppose the your um, your company uh, adheres to this thing that you have fifty percent women on the board of governors, right? Uh, um, in a limited liberal sense, that is considered to be a victory, right? And it is uh, seen as progressive, etc. But the common issue um, is that if it is irrespective of whether it is a man or a woman if it is uh, if the norm that they are working towards is still profit maximization it may still come at any cost right so uh, while there is this sort of this what i feel is uh, uh, only a beginning kind of step to maybe change the composition of like uh, decision makers or broaden the set of decision makers, the underlying values are perhaps not being changed. So it comes back to, I think, you know, this conversation of how do we, I mean, how do we see value? I mean, what is the exchange value? How is it constituted? What is value in use? How is it constituted? And uh, um, yeah, I think so. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I've given you an, <laughs> an answer as much as maybe highlighted the fact that for the answers that exist, there are the concerns uh, that you are articulating still remain. They just change a little bit. It's not that the concerns go away because I think fundamentally the... Uh, the the questions of values have not been resolved uh, um, in that in 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 a meaningful kind of way. Sorry again, monologue. <laughs> Please don't be sorry. Yes, absolutely. That's that's so important. Uh, I think like this this idea of a liberal sense of progressive like limited <laughs> liberal sense of progressive victory really really rings a bell like uh, it sort of characterizes it like what i would say is it doesn't change the structural issue that gender is so yeah that uh, that's the point yeah so like even if yes akhila no no we'll complete it then we'll come no, no, I, I was looking for people to speak. It's okay, go on. <laughs> I've spoken a lot already. No, I was also thinking from what uh, Dane was saying that uh, perhaps we are also looking at uh, universally workable solutions. And maybe that is not what is going to help us out, right? Uh, I'm not saying that the fundamental question is wrong. 
I'm saying that the answers can come often from local, very contextual struggles also. And before like we all like fall into the deep trap of, you know, like uh, hopelessness, uh, there are wonderful social movements who have shown us the way forward also. It's, it's um, I am thinking particularly of um, definitely feminist struggle, but also like anti-caste feminist struggles, right? Who have um, sort of looked at the state for answers, but not as a, a, a passive beneficiary of rights, but rather they have articulated their issues in terms of uh, rights-bearing citizens. So um, I think um, Pinjratod and all of those movements which have taken place, they don't say that we are women, we need, like they articulate their rights as citizens and not only as women, right? And that's why they also uh, critique that we do not want to be called as goddesses because you're just putting us on another pedestal and saying that, okay, you stay there. As long as you stay there, we'll give you some rights and then like be happy with that kind of thing, right? So maybe a universal solution will not arise, but there might be specific contextual struggles. And I think particularly in the uh, environmental movements, um, it is even more evident that a universal solution cannot emerge, right? Just like gender is diverse, we have different environments, we have different people. And the way that environmental movements uh, in the global north at least posit the issues always jobs versus uh, the job, either, either you're with the workers or you're with the local people protecting your environment. But that's not the case in, the, uh, in many of the struggles when we look at the global south, right? So I think maybe universal solution is not what we should be looking for and therefore if we are not looking for a universal solution, then the kind of indicators that we are using will also be different in context. Yeah. I don't know if I made any sense. You know, this is interesting because it, oh, sorry, Farheen. Please go ahead. No, 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 please expand. Uh, uh. Uh, no, so this is interesting because this comes back to the question of, again, valuing by whom, right? Um, because if we speak of things in terms of valuation by the market, which is this impersonal kind of entity, then one of the things that uh, at least uh, I can see in the limited kind of study of like, you know, financial markets um, is that uh, it, it is, it, it, it's a progressive in a kind of uh, notional kind of way. It is a, a symbolic of some sort of progressive sense. But, uh, but, and this is the, this is the trouble, you know, if we're looking, uh, if we're seeing valuation by whom and it's the market, then this tendency to generalize will still be there, you know? So uh, I, I think you're making a valid point in saying that, you know, solutions um, uh, perhaps are local solutions because they would have to take into account complex uh, relationships that exist uh, at the grassroot level, but uh, one can't also forget that uh, in a broader framework that is being structured and restructured by uh, movements in, in capital, there is this tendency to generalize also, and they want to turn it into a commodity, and they want to turn it into something. I use they, but I mean, 
not a conspiracy theorist. So yeah, uh, just as a frame of reference. But uh, yeah, I suppose that's what I, Farheen, sorry. No, no, uh, that's a great point. So um, it's just a bit of a tangent, but you know, recently there was a newspaper article which uh, uh, stated that a uh, party in Tamil Nadu is uh, working on a policy for uh, house, uh, housewives to be paid a certain wage, right? So a valuation by bureaucratic system and you know schemes like that. Uh, do you think that's a way for you know a forward or a solution? Does anyone have kind of a? Well, there's this interesting case, no, that has uh, that that emerged. Uh, I think it was a, a family met with an accident matter went to court, and I think it was an insurance matter or something like that. And basically, the thing that uh, uh, the Supreme Court said that you know, you know, the quantum of uh, what is that, um, or the, the 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 money that should be sort of uh, uh, given as compensation for um, for this man who has lost his wife in this accident by the insurance company should take into account the fact that you know she's done work in the house and all of that so it's a kind of weirdly bittersweet kind of like victory in the sense that you know yes women's work is being it is being now priced and valued right but it is only in the sense that she was a homemaker and therefore you know there is a there is essentially a financial loss happening to the man as a result of this. this is a very strange kind of so i mean and presumably this is seen as and i have seen some reactions to this and it the reactions seem to be quite happy about you know yes women's work is finally being uh, valued but at what to what end you know i think you know at that uh, um i think the the, the phrase that we've been deploying here is a structure, right? Like, so so it is well within this patriarchal structure that it is only because you were rendering services to this man within the context of a well-defined family unit uh, structured under a certain kind of formulation of law and therefore a pre-configuration for how benefits or uh, capital within the family structure would be distributed and redistributed. These are things that have to be kept in uh, mind. So like, it is a victory, but it is, I mean, it is a phyric victory. We are perhaps losing much more than we are gaining with this. Yes, absolutely. I think completely agree with that. Like, it, it's also like, it's a, again to go back to Bina's paper to understand that if we have to make a change it has to be at all levels right it's it, it's not enough to make a change at one level so it's all of them are in alliance capital is in alliance with the state and state is in alliance with patriarchy and if you have to sort of and it's it's they reinforce each other so if you have to really take take do anything and Akhila is also completely right that it has to come from a very historically locally contextually specific experience that you frame your indicators what you are calling indicators right uh, you frame your in indicators based on a very specific experience and um, if you have to implement any solutions to look at totality totality of relations instead of just 
like this is why just having women on board board of governors wouldn't be really enough because that doesn't really change the whole structure that is in question and again paying like you're compensating compensating i think it's more compensation than anything else like it's compensating the man for the loss of free labor Absolutely. that has happened all through life right so uh free labor of women taken for granted of course that does not mean that you institutionalize wage for every woman who works because that would change property relations that would change the way in which women can bargain their safety from the violence of abusive men in households because that would fundamentally change so many things there the state capital everything gets redistributed and sort of change changes the way in which patriarchy can assert its bodily control over women right so that all of that has to come in alliance with one another i think which is what the bottom point sort of is and we had i think a wonderful discussion we've out of time and i think i really really enjoyed this thank you and thank you for being here and thank you for reading participating asking really fantastic questions very thought provoking questions i learned a lot about economics today and i'm very very happy um <laughs> uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Mr. very much. Thank you everyone for joining. Thank you. Bye. Let's Bye. carry the discussion to the group now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Everyone. Thank you everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.